Hello, and welcome to episode 231 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz. How's it going, Ian? It's going great, Jason. You've had a, an interesting great. week. I'm not going to say why, but you've had a, probably a very interesting, I've, I've had a very stressful week. Yes, this week has been extremely stressful, but I will say that that stress has been lifted a little. I mean, there's still a, a lot to do, but it's been quite the week. But things are looking up in the world. And so I'm glad to record the podcast with you today rather than yesterday, because I just probably would have been shaking out of my seat with stress and it wouldn't have been a very different podcast. But we have a very good show for you today. It's not as good as last week's show because Jason no, and I are still very pleased with how our conversation with Charles Duncan went. We both had such fun and it was so nice to have such candor and openness, which both mean the same thing, from an airline executive. It's rare to have that from someone who is both very knowledgeable about the industry and their business and willing to say those words and do those things into a microphone. But I think we had such a great conversation. So if you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, please go back and do that. Yes. If you skipped last week for whatever reason, maybe skip How this episode and go back and listen to that one instead. I'm sure this episode will be great too. That's not what we want. This one will be great too, but last week, definitely go back if you did miss that. My dad texted me earlier and said the president was incredibly good and engaging. And for a second, I thought, wait, we didn't talk to Biden, but oh, right. He's talking about the podcast <laughs> the president. last yes. week. And, and yeah, this particular president of an airline was incredibly good to talk to and engaging. And I hope we have another interview like that sometime soon. They just had on Monday, the podcast came out on Friday and on Monday, and Jason, I think we can take credit for this. On Monday, a large shipping company, Scorpio Shipping, bought 10% of their stock, making a, a large investment, saying that they were impressed by what the airline was doing. I think it's safe enough to take credit for that. Clearly, this is our doing. Where's our commission? They listened to the podcast and did some research over the weekend and then bought 10% of Norse's stock. That's exactly what happened, for right? Them. I think that's exactly what happened. We're due a finder's fee, at least. So we'll be looking for that check. <laughs> it's in some sort of it's in the belly along with somewhere. a bunch of salmon on North 787. <laughs> on North, it's, it's in one of the salmon. Jason, shall we start this week's news with a follow-up from last week in Russia, or should we go straight to the UK and what happened earlier this week? Dealer's choice. Let's go to the UK, who All right. was just starting off probably their biggest holiday bank weekend. I've been told it's closely aligned with the Labor Day weekend here in the US, where it's just one of their outright biggest getaway weekends. And it didn't go so well if you were trying to get anywhere in or out of any airport in the UK, I think. Yeah, because the flight data processing system, which is the system that, among other things, processes flight plans for all flights into and out of UK airports that are managed by NATS, which is the air navigation service provider for the UK. That system went down for many, many hours on Monday, a big enough headache that a large chunk of flights were canceled. And I think 
I don't know if it was all flights in the UK after about 9 a.m., but nearly all flights in the UK after 9 a.m. were at least significantly delayed, if not outright canceled. Yeah. There was never a total uh, grounding of flights. There were diversions, I believe. Correct. Very long list of delays and cancellations, but it wasn't like what we've seen in the past with the FAA a couple times recently, where they just had to shut the whole thing down and block all departures. This was more of a delay in the basically the bandwidth of, of flight plans they could process since the automated systems were not working. They had to plan flight plans manually, which is a lot more time consuming. So instead of maybe 30 flights departing an hour from Heathrow, they could only do 10. Those numbers are I'm making those up, but you get the idea. Right. So, and we've seen this happen before with with certain airlines. It's happened with BA before where they had to process everything on paper by hand. It's happened with Southwest where they were doing paper tickets and paper boarding cards and other airlines from time to time this has happened before. To quote Nats, a release from yesterday on Monday's failure. Quote, initial investigations into the problem show it relates to some of the flight data we received. Our systems, both primary and the backups, responded by suspending automatic processing to ensure that no incorrect safety-related information could be presented to an air traffic controller or impact the rest of the air traffic system. There are no indications that this was a cyber attack, end quote. So something happened. I'm sure the Nats is working on a full report that is due to the UK's transport ministry on the 4th of September. So we should know more next week about what exactly happened. But as we know now, it was not, or, or they're telling us it wasn't a cyber attack. And they've also said that it won't happen again. It sounds like they've identified what happened and are fixing it. It's a shame they didn't do that before it happened, but these things, this is how these things go. These things happen. Yeah. It's not great. I mean, it, good and bad here that the system was able to identify that there was some sort of faulty data coming to it in the form of flight plans. Mm -hmm. that said, whoa, wow, this doesn't make sense. And both its primary and backup systems properly stopped processing flight plans because you wouldn't want to approve flight plans that are dangerous in some way or don't make any sense. You can't fly an A380 to London City. You could try, but only once. So it's a good that's, thing that's that it stopped. That's what I always tell people. You can land anywhere yeah. once. That's true. <laughs> it's a good thing that it stopped processing that data, but bad yeah. that apparently it was it was able to happen and took so many hours to identify the failure and kind of get things back in, in operation. But many lessons were learned. I'm sure many, many conference calls will be held and a software patch will be out one day to prevent this from happening again. Yeah. So effects still occurring a few days on based on all of the people that were affected and trying to rebook them and, and reaccommodate them, but things are, are moving much more smoothly now. We turn our attention now back to Russia for follow-up on the crash of the Embraer that was carrying Evgeny Prigozhin and nine other Wagner Group or a number of other Wagner Group employees, comrades. I, I'm not sure what you call sure. a private military, as well as flight crew and a flight attendant. And that aircraft crashed last Wednesday. The flight data recorders have been recovered by the Russian investigators, but as of now, Brazil has said that Russia will not open an ICAO Annex 13 investigation. And an Annex 13 investigation would allow the air safety 
investigators from the country for the state of manufacture, which in this case, the aircraft is in Embraer, so it would be Brazil, as well as the manufacturer of the engines. In this case, it's Rolls-Royce USA. It would allow those parties, as well as investigatory bodies from many of the nationalities of people on board the aircraft to attend the investigation and take part while Russia led the investigation. Russia, for its part, the Interstate Aviation Commission says that it will not open an investigation under Annex 13 at this time. They're not legally obligated to. This is interesting to me. I didn't know that because it's a purely domestic flight, they are not legally obligated to open an Annex 13. There were no foreign nationals and it was a domestic flight. So they're not obligated to open an investigation under Annex 13. So that I did not know, but I'm learning from the Brazilians who are kind of explaining how disappointing this is to their investigatory body because their interest in this is, well, we want to figure out why the Embraer crashed because we believe this to be a safe airplane. And if there's something wrong with the airplane, we want to know Reuters reports that 802 Embraer regional jets are built on the same platform, have been built on the same platform as the Legacy 600. So it's important to them to know whether or not this was in fact, did something happen because of the aircraft or did something happen to the aircraft? I mean, we talked about this last week. We really don't like to speculate, but but it seems to me that it's safe to say, given who was on board the aircraft, their history with the head of the Russian government, recent history with the head of the Russian government, it seems to me that the likeliest explanation for all of this is not a mechanical failure of the aircraft itself. No, but I'm sure Embraer would love to be able to say that this had nothing to do with the aircraft being Embraer. And it's unfortunate that they'll never get that opportunity because there's never going to be an investigation. They're never going to say what happened unless they outright lie about it. Let's be honest. Russia seemed to have no interest in doing any sort of investigation because we saw merely hours after the crash, they were tractoring parts of the aircraft out, which we know in any investigation, you preserve the evidence, you keep it in place. You don't just start clearing the rubble and and moving on with your life. So everyone knows what happened. I mean, we should be clear what tractoring means. Some of this came down in a wooded area and they attached it to a very large tractor and just dragged it through the woods. Yes. I was being very literal by saying tractor. Uh, There's no tractor beam here. It is a literal tractor that they were hauling (laughs) pieces of the aircraft. Yeah. We all know what happened here, whether it was a, a missile strike or a bomb planted on board. It doesn't matter. They're never going to say. And Embraer can, I think they're going to be okay here. I think they can write this one off as uh, external factors. Yeah. We'll see what the effect on on the relationship with Brazil is, but I don't think this is really something that they were pinning their hopes on, so that they would be a party to this particular investigation. Right after we hit stop on the recording last week, our good friend John Ostrauer at the Air Current did one of those things where he broke news and then we had to say, we just recorded the podcast. We'll have to talk about it next week. In this particular instance, John broke the news that Boeing and Spirit Aerosystems are dealing with a fresh quality issue on the 737 MAX. 
This particular issue affects the rear pressure bulkhead on the 737 MAX 8, only some of the 737 MAX 8. This particular issue involves what they're calling snowmen. Oh, that, that sounds nice. Are double, it sounds nice, but it's not. Double drilled holes, basically, that end up looking like tiny snowmen. And that, Boeing says, does not create an immediate safety of flight issue, but it's something that needs to be fixed on the identified parts. And the ones that have not yet been delivered needs to fix before they can be delivered. If they've been delivered, they need to be they need to be addressed. What I didn't know about this particular part is why it only affects some of the 737 fuselages. And that's because this particular part comes from a subcontractor to Spirit and comes from oh. multiple suppliers. And therefore, one of the subcontractors to the subcontractor didn't do quite a good a job as they should have. And so that's affecting Spirit's deliveries to Boeing, which is affecting Boeing's deliveries to customers. So now the question becomes, can they deliver as many aircraft as they wanted to in 2023? Boeing's delivery goal was 400. No. No. Yeah. Boeing's delivery goal was 400 to 450 737s this year. Assuming you take into account all of the 737s that they've delivered so far this year, they would need to deliver between 30 and 40 per month for the rest of the year to meet that goal. Yeah. I think what is most concerning here in John's report is that these fuselages passed quality inspections at Spirit before heading out to Boeing. But the article states that in some cases, there were aircraft with hundreds of misaligned and duplicated holes. This isn't one drill slip and a hole was actually accidentally turned into a snowman. There are apparently hundreds of misaligned and duplicated holes on, on single airframes, which is just how at this point in the building of the 737, a half a century old aircraft at this point is drilling holes in something as critical as the rear pressure bulkhead or the fuselage, still eluding spirit here. This should be down to such a science that such a mistake to make once is next to impossible. But to do it hundreds of times on a single fuselage, what the hell is going on at these companies? I don't understand this at all. That was my takeaway. Not that it's such a serious issue that it's, it's a safety of flight issue, which Boeing says it's not, but that after all this time, we're still finding fresh ways to not get it right? Is it, I guess, and certainly this is a question that Spirit's asking themselves, is is it an issue with this particular supplier? You know, is it something that they're doing? Is it something that someone did? And then obviously, how did these pass quality inspection? That's a great question. But here we are 56 years, more than half a century after the first flight of the 737 with over 11 and a half thousand of these aircraft built they can't drill the holes in the damn thing right. This is kind of, not kind of, I, I, in my eyes, this is inexcusable. It's just absurd that such mistakes can still be happening. I think some deep, serious conversations need to be happening between Boeing, Spirit, and I guess it's sub or maybe sub subcontractors at this point, because this just doesn't make any sense to me. And to fill in the holes with fasteners or whatever seems like something maybe you do once, but to do it on so many aircraft and, and do this incorrectly so many times, I don't understand it. I'm sure we'll learn more right after we hit stop on the recording on this podcast. Oh, for, for sure. But if yeah. we do, we'll talk about it next week. 
Earlier this week, and by earlier I mean yesterday, on the 29th of August, the Federal Aviation Administration introduced a new urgent airworthiness directive that relates to the Boeing 777, and it's to prevent fuel tank fires, which sounds pretty important to me. You want to prevent those. Those are important to prevent. And you don't usually hear urgent unsafe condition. It's not, those are not terms that the FAA uses all that often. Yeah. So what this deals with are fastener cap seals on the inside of the fuel tanks. And the FAA says that those fastener cap seals are, quote, a critical lightning protection feature, particularly true for the center wing fuel tank, which typically contains flammable fuel vapors more frequently than the main wing tanks. Boeing sent out a service bulletin in 2021, but that included incorrect information, which seems to be why this is an urgent fix, because there was already a bulletin to address this condition, but there was incorrect information in that service bulletin. So this is where the urgency comes from, because we were already supposed to have this fixed. More to the point, This takes effect on the 15th of September and gives airlines 30 days from the effective date to determine whether or not their capsules need to be replaced. So this is all going to move pretty quickly once the airworthiness directive takes effect. Yes. And the FAA says uh, if these seals are not replaced properly and the associated fastener has poor electrical bonding to the airplane structure for any reason, the fastener may spark during a lightning strike and cause a fuel tank explosion. Wow, that escalated quickly towards the end of that. Yeah. Yeah. Ah, I have a couple 777 flights before this AD goes into effect. That's nice. Hope we don't fly through any storms. Yeah, this one's a doozy. Again, it's not to say that all of these aircraft are unsafe. It's to say that there could be an unsafe condition and you need to check your fuel caps, fuel fastener caps. Yes. Flight Global reports that 291 affected US registered 777s, including 200, 200LR, 300, 300ER, and 777 freighters are affected. Interestingly, though, 777s lacking a certain fuel tank are exempt. Not sure what fuel tank that would be. Maybe tail fuel tank? I'm not even sure if the 777 has a tail fuel tank, but apparently there are some versions of the 777 that are not impacted by this. All right, then. Well, Jason, that's your homework. Figure out which 777s are not impacted by this. All right, then. Shall we turn our attention to aircraft orders, aircraft routes, and new old airlines? We should. All right. Right after we hit stop on the recording last week, I I think we just pick right back up where all the news happens as soon as we hit stop. Oh, yes. This was right after we hit stop. After we stopped recording. Yeah. Yeah. Qantas announced that it is going to order more 787s and A350s and retire its A380s beginning in 2032. The Fiscal airline year will 2032. Yes, which fisc- knows yes sorry. It, well, it's Australia, so it might be 2079. I don't know. There's no way to know. Impossible. Absolutely impossible to know. A380 retirement date is from around 2032 near 2032. The airline will take 12 A350 1000s. Another dozen Boeing 787s split between 8-10s and 4-9s. And yeah, that was the order. That was the new aircraft and out go the A380s. Yeah, the 787s are in line to replace the A330 fleet at Qantas, which 
They say the average age of that fleet will be 21 years old at the time the replacement program starts in fiscal year 2027. So these deliveries are still way off in the future. I'm assuming the A350-1000s will be an indirect replacement for the 10 A380s, which is interesting because the A330 fleet at Qantas is not that old. Typically, airlines stretch a lot older than that. But yeah, it's interesting that we have the full spectrum of Qantas's international fleet planned out here for at least another 10 years. Yeah. I love how Qantas names all of their aircraft orders after something. And in this case, it has named this particular international fleet renewal as Project Fish, I believe. They say, in honor of Sir Hudson Fish, who co-founded the airline and was managing director when it commenced international flying in 1935. Fantastic. That's just good to know. They do like to name things, don't they? They do. I like it. You know what name I like? What? Mr. Raccoon. Ah, you mean Mr. Porter. I mean Mr. Porter, the raccoon. Sir Porter? Is he Sir Porter? No. You're thinking of Sir Turtle. Cayman Airways. Oh, oh, right, 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 right. Yes. Mr. Porter has not been knighted, as far as I know. Ah. He's still a Mr., not a Sir. (laughs) Yeah, who knows what he's been up to. But those are my two top favorite airline fictional mascots. Mr. Porter is a very classy raccoon, and unfortunately, he's going to one of the least classiest places that their new E-195 E-2s could operate to, which is seven routes to Florida. The routes from Toronto Pearson, that was good. That was good. The routes from Toronto Pearson Airport, because these are the E-195 E-2, and they cannot fly to Toronto City's airport on the island. They are going to Fort Lauderdale, Fort Myers, Miami, Orlando, and Tampa. And then from Ottawa, they will fly to Fort Lauderdale and Orlando. So these are the family fun express routes, and they're, they're going all in. I believe Porter had a route to maybe Tampa, I want to say, in the past on the Dash H, which I always thought was a very excruciatingly- I thought it was to Hilton Head. Something like that. I don't remember exactly where, but they had a a Dash 8 flight to the deep south of the US, which was just- Myrtle Beach. Myrtle Beach. There it is. Myrtle Beach. Way farther than you would really probably want to be on a turboprop. But now that they've got these new- E195 E2s or will have them. It opens up a whole new, it's really a new airline coming online here. It's a very different strategy with a very different route network than anything Mr. Porter has indulged in in the past. Yeah. And I'm looking forward to seeing Mr. Porter on the E195 E2. I I assume he flies on, on every flight. 1A, every flight. Or something like that. Okay. Here's an interesting one. A few years ago, Monarch Airlines, the British holiday package carrier went bankrupt and stopped operating in spectacular fashion. At the time, and I think still is, the largest repatriation, a peacetime civilian repatriation effort in the history of the measurement of such things. There were lots and lots of people affected as the airline went bankrupt overnight. I mean, with some warning, but almost no warning. Not a whole lot. Not a whole lot of warning. Now, a new investment group is back and Monarch is maybe coming back, but it's weird because it's like people are out there trying to pretend that they're also Monarch and the true Monarch and the real Monarch and there's different competing Monarch accounts and it's all very, the whole announcement was just bizarre. I'm not paying too close attention to this until there's something more tangible, more real. I mean, I I get 
bringing back a brand name that was likable and widely recognized. So maybe that is Monarch. Maybe this is a good brand to bring back. But after the collapse of Monarch and then Thomas Cook, I guess is a void to fill in, in the UK holiday space. Yeah, the, the package holiday. Yeah, I'm surprised the, the likes of EasyJet and Ryanair haven't absolutely gobbled up whatever happened in that void. But if there's room for one more, let's hope they do better than Redway. Yeah. <laughs> Boy, I think that's certainly a, a different. Maybe they would have been better with package holidays. Maybe, yeah. Who knows? Yeah, but the goal, as I understand it, is to get their AOC and and begin operations sometime in 2025. So we'll see. The plan right now is with Airbus A320 aircraft. No idea where they're coming from, how they're going to get them, but that seems to be the plan. And we'll we'll follow this and and talk more about it when there's a real aircraft involved and and there's an AOC to be had. But just yep. something to, I guess, follow along with. Keep an eye on. Yeah. So the JetBlue Spirit merger is under threat, both from the United States Department of Justice and via private lawsuits. There is a group of travel agents and other travel professionals suing JetBlue to stop its merger with Spirit. And there were some court filings last week that were redacted improperly that gave us an interesting look at the plans for the post-merger activities of the two and soon to be one companies if things go through. JetBlue says, no, these aren't our plans. You misinterpreted our internal data and then said something that we didn't say. The response from the lawyer who who made the improper redactions said, I'm just Having, you know, setting out numbers based on what your CEO has said themselves. So, what happened was, is the improper redactions showed that JetBlue plans to increase fares from Spirit's current fares between 20 and 40%, or 24 and 40%. And that seems to fly in the face of this will be good for consumers. You should let us merge. Again, JetBlue has said, that's not what we said. You're taking our internal internal deliberations out of context. So it will be interesting to see how that plays out in court based on the improper redactions. But also, if that is anywhere near accurate, I can't see how that doesn't strengthen the Department of Justice's case against JetBlue. Yeah. And JetBlue is apparently not all that happy about this. Miss understatement. Redacting, I guess. <laughs> and they have asked the judge for, quote, serious sanctions against the lawyers who are suing to block the merger. I mean, maybe that maybe that happens, maybe it doesn't, but we'll keep an eye on it. This has been a roller coaster of a thing that happened in the last week, I guess. So we'll see if those sanctions happen or not, or really probably don't care about that. But that's it was a lot of fuel to rile up people against the merger. And it certainly worked, whether or not it's true. Yeah. Only time will tell. (laughs) And there's certainly a lot of that to go around. Speaking of time, American Airlines has been fined $4.1 million for violation of the US Department of Transportation's tarmac delay rules. This particular fine is if not the largest, then one of the largest ever handed out by the Department of Transportation. I believe it is the largest, yes. 
Yeah. Dozens of flights stuck on the ground for long periods of time without letting passengers off. The tarmac delay rules, which came into effect a few years ago, it probably more years ago than I think they came into effect, but it feels like just a few years ago, three hours on domestic flights without providing, you can't keep anybody on the aircraft for more than three hours without providing them an opportunity to get off the aircraft. Most of these delays were at Dallas-Fort Worth. Then let's see, the breakdown of the fine is of the 4.1 million assessed, 2.05 million will be credited to the airline for compensation provided to passengers on the affected flights. American Airlines says that the delays were because of weather and we've apologized to customers and then they go on to talk about how they try and make things better. But that's a big fine and good that American compensated the passengers, even though perhaps they weren't legally required to because these were were weather issues. Yeah, not legally obligated to. And I would still much prefer these fines go to the passengers rather than the government who's probably just going to waste it anyway. Really wish we had an EU 261 equivalent here in the US where at least maybe just for tarmac delays, those fines went to the passengers rather than the government. That that just seems like it's such a direct thing that could happen that yes, passengers in this case were directly inconvenienced yeah, by yeah. the airline or their operations or whatever. Why can't that fine be directed to the passengers? That just makes at least at least 50%. Something like that. I don't know. But yeah, American wins the award that no airline wants to win for highest ever tarmac compensation. Though I have a feeling we're going to see quite a number of those handed out in the New York area this past summer when there were some meltdowns at LaGuardia. Well, we'll see. Where do we go next? We go supersonic or soon to be supersonic. Boom has received the airworthiness certificate for its XB-1 demonstrator aircraft. This is the scaled-down pilot-only demonstrator for its eventual overture supersonic transport aircraft. The first flight of the XB-1 was supposed to happen in 2020. It was announced in 2020. It was supposed to happen in 2021. Events ensued, and so they are targeting sometime in the future for first flight of the XB-1. They've been doing taxi tests, but we don't yet have a date for the first flight. But at least now they have the airworthiness certificate, so it's coming soon-ish, we hope. Be interesting to see. I don't think we have much to say beyond that, other than, hey, when it happens, we'll track it. What about an adults-only cabin? We got a few emails about this from listeners who wanted us to talk about this. And I looked into it, and this is Corndon Airlines is going to introduce an adults-only cabin on its A350 fleet, which is joining the airline starting for the winter. They're going to fly five times a week to Curacao, and they will have an adults-only cabin in the the front of the aircraft where there will be adults only. I don't know how many more different ways to say that. But this isn't new. It's not novel. There are other airlines that do this. Jason, I think Scoot is one of the others that's consistently had this particular kind Uh, of product. It'll be interesting to see how that goes. 
we talked about this a little before the show. This isn't new, novel, unique, or whatever. This has happened with plenty of airlines over the years. But I think, Ian, you said that, yeah, they're probably doing this to stir up some excitement and news hits for, say, 350. And it worked because I did not know that they were getting A350s anytime soon. So mission accomplished, PR firm or internal comms or whomever. I am now aware that this airline is getting A350s. Let me step back. They're not getting A350s. They're using world to flies. Oh, whatever. A350s. They're going somewhere new that they couldn't go before. But it sounds like they're going to be, yeah, going to be quarantinized, if that's a word. It could be a word now. Jason, you thought this was pretty cool. And then you sent it to me and I said, yeah, that's pretty cool. And what's going on in Singapore at Changi Airport? Again, not novel, not unique, hasn't isn't something that has not been done before. That was a double negative, but you get it. Chang has installed some automatic jet bridges, or maybe not automatic, not yet. They are push-button jet bridges. So typically today, when a flight blocks in or is blocking out, there is a a human being on, on basically a joystick that has to manually maneuver the jet bridge, which as many of you have experienced in the past, Ian, I know this includes you many times, that last 10 feet of moving the jet bridge can somehow be the most frustrating, time-consuming piece of an entire journey. It is not an easy thing. I'm not saying that this is due to incompetence or just bad driving. These are heavy, big machines that you're driving with the joystick and a couple buttons. Getting it right takes a lot of practice, but man, does this ever seem like the kind of thing that can and should be automated. And if an airport like Changi is doing it, it gives me hope that other airports can do the same kind of thing. So in this case, a ramp worker actually enables the jet bridge on the ground by just turning a key and pushing a button. And the system uses all sorts of door detection, lasers, sensors, things. I'm sure there's all sorts of beeping and booping. And the jet bridge just automatically aligns with the doors. And and that's that. I hope that this is a success and that it is rolled out to every airport everywhere immediately so we can weed out that last annoying 10 feet that somehow seems to take <laughs> forever. Forever. And also, that's, it will probably, let's be realistic, when this does become commonplace, I'm sure we will see fewer incidents of jet bridge slamming into cowling or into the wing or shearing off the door of the aircraft or whatever. Yep. Yeah. That'll be nice. But if that were to happen to a particular subset of A320s, you could still get off the plane. Yes. But how? (laughs) It's a long (laughs) drop without stairs attached to those aircraft. Well, how about you put stairs in the aircraft, Jason? Again, not novel, not unprecedented. If you've ever flown Ryanair, you have almost certainly boarded a 737 using the built-in air stairs or You've been lucky enough to fly in a Boeing business jet. You may have bought it that way too. Business jet. Lucky you. If any U.S. government officials are listening, and and you're regularly flying on C40s, then same deal. But yeah, Airbus now has. They've installed, and there was video this week from I think it was from inside the final assembly line in Hamburg of air stairs on an A320. So goes slides in underneath the L1 door. And then when you want to use them, they press a button, the door slides out, stairs come out, fold down, and away you go. Yeah. And I learned a lot about that this week. Apparently, the earliest models of the A320 
did the A320-100 did include this as an option from the factory. I think some of the early, well, predecessor to BA aircraft had these, maybe some of the Air France models as well, maybe the Air India models. This was a thing that I guess just not a lot of airlines picked up, so Airbus discontinued it and it is now available on the Neo, I think through third parties because Lufthansa Technique is tagged in this. So this might be just a vendor proof of thing. Concept that, or ACJ, yeah, maybe. maybe not a proof of concept, but yeah, for the ACJ, it is definitely an option. I don't think you'll be seeing this coming to any commercial airlines. And apparently the, the A320 door is quite a bit higher than it is on the 737. So it's a lot of just extra material, extra weight to get that door yeah. or excuse me, the, the ladder in that aircraft but we'll post a link to the video because it's just it's just weird to see the ladder's actually at a pretty steep angle as well i think much steeper than the 737 so you probably wouldn't want to use this for passenger boarding for a commercial flight but sure is interesting to watch yeah all right well the video is linked in the show notes and we close the show with not quite breaking news because it happened yesterday, but it's important. It's huge. It's the biggest story that you're going to read or listen to in the next 38 seconds. The new Superjet has flown for the first time. You got to put a little asterisk there though, because there's, there's a complication, isn't there? What's the complication? I don't know if it's a complication, but it, it's certainly an asterisk because the new quote unquote Superjet is still fitted with the same engines designed by the French. The production versions of the SSJ New, or the SJ100 as it is is now being called, will have the Russian-built PD-8 engines, but those have not yet been fitted to this particular aircraft. It's a superjet. They took out almost all of the parts that weren't crafted by companies outside of Russia, and now it's a, a... nearly Russian. Well, I suppose it's a Russian glider with French engines. All right. That's something. Good luck to them and, and getting the, the Russian version of those engines because it, it sure seems like they're going to need it at this rate. It doesn't seem like the sanctions necessitating this from, for happening in the first place are really going to happen anytime or be lifted anytime soon. But I guess it's good for them that they got all of the other avionics and all of the other systems, hydraulic, whatever, homegrown at this point. Because remember, the, the the Superjet, its selling point, its big, big selling point was that it was not a Russian aircraft, that it was an internationally sourced aircraft built in Russia. And that is very much not the case anymore. No, no, it is not that. And we'll see who buys it or who is told to buy it. Yeah, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> Let's see. Next week is Dorkfest. Jason and I will both be there. Many of you have emailed to say that you are going as well. That's next Friday. It begins next Friday. Dorkfest is actually on Saturday, Saturday morning, the 9th, Saturday morning, the 9th, 11 a.m. in the park across the street from the in and out at LAX. But there's the NYC Aviation event at the H Hotel rooftop on Friday night. If anyone's going to that, I believe I will be in attendance for a little bit at least. And then I'll be around all day Saturday and Sunday morning. So if you are planning on coming, by all means, stop by, say hello. Don't be 
shy. We would love to talk with you and see you there. So I, so I hope many of our listeners will be joining us in LA for the weekend. All right. Looking forward to it. Yeah, me too. It's going to be a nice time. But for now, we say goodbye. This has been episode 231 of AvTalk. I am Ian Pechnik, here as always with... Jason Rabinowitz, thanks for listening.